Welcome to Talking Theology, a podcast of Cranmer Hall Durham, where we explore some of life's big questions and try to join the dots between theology, church and the world. I'm your host, Philip Fleming, Warden of Cranmer Hall, and it's my privilege to bring to you some of the most interesting theological thinkers today. If you enjoy Talking Theology, do subscribe at your favourite podcast provider. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Talking Theo and share on social media. Thank you for listening. Now, on to today's episode. Is the Book of Acts just the story of what happened then, or what could also happen today? What does the Book of Acts tell us about the gospel that really changed the world? What was so distinctive in those early Christian communities? And why is it important for the book of Acts to challenge us today? Welcome to this episode of Talking Theology. In today's show, I'll be talking to Dr. Mark Bonington. Mark is Senior Leader at King's Church Durham and teaches on the book of Acts within the MA programme at Cranmer Hall. So our question today is, how does the book of Acts both challenge and inspire the mission of the church? Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Mark Bonington, welcome to Talking Theology. Philip, thank you so much. It's great to be with you. Mark, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your own journey that's involved, I know, academic work, including lecturing, as well as leading a local church? What's that journey look like? I grew up in what used to be called the house churches, or I suppose now the new churches movement. But I got into theology while studying maths at university and started reading theology books and discovered studying theology, you're allowed to have an opinion about things and make arguments. Uh, It doesn't work like that in maths. And at that time, I felt a call to train leaders and to do that by getting ahead theologically in a movement that tended and perhaps tends to slightly fight shy of of theology. So I, I went back to university later, did a theology degree, PhD on Paul and I think became the first person in the new churches to get a PhD. And I came to Durham to teach New Testament Cranmer 25 years ago, 1995. Before that, I was writing up my PhD, being a house spouse, which was kind of fun, doing some research for the Evangelical Alliance, but also leading a small community church in my spare time. And, and when we came to Durham, I joined King's The previous leader left in 2001 as I was asked to take over this band of rather lovely people and do this again in my spare time. And after a few years, it kind of got out of hand. And and so since then, I've tried to to balance engagement with academic stuff with leading a growing church. Now, I know you teach on the Book of Acts. You teach, in fact, at Cranmer Hall on the Book of Acts as one of our MA modules. Tell us What was it that first attracted you to take a particular interest in that book of the Bible? Yeah, it's one of those weird things, isn't it? I did my PhD on Galatians, and it's never, ever been on the curriculum anywhere. In Durham, I taught at Leeds for three years. I know a lot about four verses in Galatians, but I've never really taught on that. And I suppose it was partly my inherited interest in the charismatic movement and anything to do with the Holy Spirit. And when we were asked in the late 90s to volunteer to teach MA courses, first of all in the theology department and then later in Cranmer, the first one I offered was on 
the history and theology of the charismatic movement. And of course, some of that was on the Book of Acts. So that was the first kind of MA level teaching. And then probably historical accident is the answer to why I've ended up teaching Acts and studying it more deeply. Steve Croft left as Warden of Cranmer, and he and Jimmy Dunn taught a mission and ministry MA on Acts. And Jimmy retired and Steve left, and they thought it was too important to miss from the curriculum. So they turned around to me and said, how would you like to do this? And I thought, oh, that'd be a lot of fun. I already know a bit about Acts. I'd love to, to know more. And so that's how I got into teaching Acts, and it was needing to teach Acts that drove me to read a lot more and, and to get into it in more detail. Acts is a fascinating book. It's a unique book, isn't it, in the New Testament in terms of being a book about history that isn't the Gospels. It's about the history of the church. But I know the question about why the book of Acts was written is not a straightforward one. How would you begin to answer that question about kind of why Acts was written and where it fits within the New Testament, what we call the canon of Scripture? Yeah, it's a much discussed point. I suppose one classic theory is that Acts is the first book of church history. As the church begins to realise we're going to be here for a while, one theory is that it turns from its immanentist theology that expects Jesus to return and to settle for the idea that this is the beginning of a, a longer story of God's action in the world. There are some bits of that that I don't particularly subscribe to. I'm not sure the early church was quite as imminentist as some people expect. They didn't, I think, think that Jesus would come back any minute, as some people caricature them as believing. But I think there's a deep historical interest here about a movement needing to know about its origins. And if a movement is going to retain its integrity, it has to be faithful to its roots. And that's one of the reasons why the Book of Acts is so important for the Christian church. There are other things as well, of course. So there's a careful balance between the Jewish mission under Peter and the Gentile mission under Paul, and overlap between the two, because Cornelius I and his household, the first Gentile converts, had converted under Peter. And Paul, according to Acts, goes to the synagogues and talks to the Jews first. And only when they boot him out does he then talk to the Gentiles. So it's not quite as simple as Peter to the Jews, Paul to the Gentiles. And you're given this lovely picture of the spreading flame of the gospel. And although 1.8 says Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, the end of Acts takes us to the gates of Rome, <laughs> to the centre of the pagan world. And part of the message of the book of Acts is the spread of the gospel is successful. The gospel does spread. The church does grow. The gospel is heard and responded to. But I suppose the thing that I'm most convinced about Acts is that it's a kind of parallel story. We all know it's a second volume to the gospel according to Luke, and that is clearly proclaimed at the beginning of Acts, and the end of Luke's gospel ends anticipating the facts of Pentecost and the life of the church. But there's a parallel here between Jesus' ministry and the church. It begins with the empowering of the Spirit, preaching and miracles, opposition, and both end 
with three trials. And I find that detail just convincing that there are parallel stories here. And so the story of Jesus is being reenacted, we might say, in the life of the church. And I think that's enormously powerful because one of the problems for the church has always been how do we read the pre-Easter material of Jesus' ministry to apply to the post-Easter church? And different bits of the New Testament do that in different ways. But Luke and Acts give us two parallel stories and say, this is what was going on in Jesus' ministry. This is what's going on in the life of the church. They're not the same thing, but there are strands that run through and they are parallel stories. I found that just uh, an incredibly helpful way of thinking of the book of Acts. It's the ministry of Jesus reenacted with the ascended Lord and his authority, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. You've highlighted there, Mark, three reasons, particularly around the purpose, the idea of researching the origins of the church and any movement needs to know its origins, the sense of the positive picture of the spread of the gospel and that being successful, and then this sense of Acts being a reenactment of the pre-Easter account. I wonder, therefore, do we have to choose about how we read the Acts of the Apostles today? Because some people sort of say, oh, it's the story of where we came from. Some people say, no, it's actually exemplary for our mission and ministry in the 21st century. It sounds like you might be saying, well, actually, it can be both and. Well, certainly, I don't think we need to reduce the purpose of a book as long and as rich as the Book of Acts to a single purpose. That's just silly. Authors can be doing more than one thing at the same time. That's obviously going on in the Book of Acts. There is that kind of range of ways that people read Acts. If I can put it like this, at one end of the spectrum, there are those who treat it largely as historical, but perhaps too far from today's church to be really something that we put a lot of weight or authority on. And there's a kind of conservative view of this that says that because it's narrative, I never say this, but it's nice illustrative material, but because it's narrative and not doctrinal, and what we really like is Romans, we should subordinate it to Paul or whoever they prefer in the rest of the New Testament. And that's one end of the spectrum, is rather, I think, to downplay its role in the canon. Perhaps at the other end of the spectrum, perhaps the more Pentecostal and charismatic end of the spectrum, takes it as more or less programmatic and to be imitated in detail. This is how mission is to be practiced. This is how church structures are to be organized and so on and so forth. And I have to say, I don't think either of those will do. It's genre, of course. The kind of thing it is, is telling exemplary, exciting, wonderful narrative. Everything from a lame man at the temple, on the temple steps, being lifted up and healed in front of a crowd, you know, to a boy falling out of a window three floors and and dying and the Apostle Paul spreading his arms uh, over him and he being raised from the dead. Paul preaching in the night and then raising somebody from the dead and then having another meal and carrying on till morning. You know, that clearly is not a pattern simply to be imitated. I think clearly somewhere in the middle, but it's being offered to us as a challenge, as a stimulus to the church in every generation. Where there are patterns, where things are obviously being commended to us, 
a church committed to the apostles' teaching, to prayer, to fellowship, etc. That's being held out to us as exemplary, I think, and to be copied, and it's a good pattern. But I don't want to reduce that to, you know, four habits of a highly effective church or something like that, like a slot machine. You put axe in and turn the handle and out comes the church in the power of the spirit. That doesn't work. So for me, it is a constant challenge, but it's not simply a pattern to be imitated, nor something to be put in the drawer as proof of the gospel in the first century. But now we need to turn to more theologically serious material in the New Testament. I don't think either extreme will do. We've thought about the purpose and you've given us that middle way that sits between those two extremes that you've mentioned. So let's go back that picture that the Book of Acts paints of the character of the early church and its ministries. What is there that you feel is exemplary in that picture? What is there that seems to be a pattern that we're seeing? Yeah, of course, we all pick our generalizations and our patterns to suit our particular emphases. I mean, ever since the 19th century in liberal Protestantism, one way of presenting the early church of the Book of Acts has been to say that the church started kind of easygoing, chaotic, but full of the power of the Spirit, and later it got organized and hierarchical and rather powerless. And that kind of reading seems to me to be resisted by the text very strongly. It is the acts of the apostles rather than the acts of the Holy Spirit, though the main actors in the book of Acts are God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. But human actors, of course, the apostles, and alongside them, other groups like the Hellenists and Stephen and Paul and Barnabas and other leaders emerge, people like Philip and so on. So what we get is the church under the apostles living in the power of the Spirit, reaching out in the power of the Spirit and forming communities across the Greco-Roman world. And one of the narratives of Acts is undoubtedly the advance of the gospel to untouched places. And although that still goes on in our world, the untouched places for us are much closer to home. They are on our doorstep in the communities of the northeast of England or wherever it is that we live, rather than places beyond the geographical boundaries of the church. There are still many of those, but we're now working at the cultural margins rather than the geographical margins of the gospel. And I think behind that, there is this question about how the church is authentic in its proclamation of the gospel, in doing mission in the power of the Spirit, in the building of communities that even when the apostles have left will go on being transformative in their local community. But for me, one of the big questions of the book of Acts is about the authenticity, or we might say in classic creedal terms, the apostolicity of the church. I don't think there's a straight line from the book of Acts to the threefold order that emerges in the Catholic church. I don't think there's a necessary line from Acts to there, but it's not a bad question. How did we get from the book of Acts to there? But there are other versions of apostolicity. The kind of classic evangelical and Protestant, the Reformed one, is 
that it's the gospel itself which is the apostolic core of mission. And I suppose in the more Pentecostal and charismatic movements, it's the form of ministry that the apostles embody, particularly missional and church planting ministry that is part of the pattern of apostolicity that emerges in the book of Acts. And so one of my musings is about the authenticity of the church that grows from the book of Acts and how I think all three of those traditions, we might call those broadly the Catholic view that apostolicity is continued in the threefold order. We might call it the reformed view or the evangelical view that it's the message of the gospel being proclaimed anew in every generation to pluck a phrase out of the air. That is the apostolic heart of the church. And for those who see the book of Acts as a pattern, it's church planting and church leadership, which is missional in this exemplary and powerful way that, that you know, is the heart of genuine re-embodying of what's going on in Acts. So that's a kind of core question for me. And there are three different kinds of ways of answering that question about authenticity or apostolicity. Let's look at the second and third of those, if we can, in a bit more detail. That second one around the sort of the classic evangelical view that it's the gospel that constitutes the apostolicity of the church. Is it possible to trace key common elements, what we might describe as a pattern, a kind of core gospel that we see being preached in the book of Acts? And if so, what is it? Yeah, I mean, I think it's generally agreed that Acts has relatively little focus on the atoning death of Jesus. It's definitely mentioned, and I think it's everywhere assumed, but it's not the focus of the apostolic proclamation in the book of Acts. It's the universal lordship of Jesus, established by the resurrection, which is only possible by the crucifixion of Jesus, but Jesus' resurrection, his exaltation, and his coming as the final arbiter and divinely appointed judge of all human beings. That's right at the core of the message. It's not to deny the importance of the cross. There's the lovely story of the Ethiopian eunuch who's reading Isaiah 53 in his chariot and Philip pops up and it's like, um, you know, the lowest hanging fruit in evangelistic history, I think. But uh, you also get the idea that it's Jesus' lordship, which means his resurrection, his raising to God's right hand, and the fact that all people will give account to him. That is the remarkable claim of the gospel in the book of Acts. And I want to say this is the real driver of the mission and proclamation of the book of Acts. It's the proposal of what we might call a new and universal meta-narrative or God's big story. And that big story is that Jesus, who you crucified, God has raised up. He's put him at God's right hand and everybody will give account to him. And people like Cavan Rowe have pointed out with others just how incredibly unusual that is in the ancient world. Missionary religion did not exist before early Christianity. And what drives it is this claim to universal lordship. And that claim of universality means that everybody has to sit up and pay attention. 
And therefore, it means in the book of Acts that the proclamation of the gospel is not just a message and then God gives the Holy Spirit to give them the spiritual energy to proclaim that message. But it's the very message itself that drives mission in the power of the Holy Spirit. Because if you have that kind of universal claim, it is for everybody. It's for Jew and Gentile. Challenges Roman authority, that proclamation of Jesus as Lord, because it claims an even broader and overriding form of lordship, which is the lordship of a crucified, penniless preacher from an obscure eastern territory of the Roman Empire, but because God is involved in his death, resurrection, his exaltation, and has proclaimed him the final arbiter of all human life. That's the heart of the gospel, and it drives mission. And that mission that you describe is that third sort of mark of apostolicity, the potential answer to that, which is around the form of ministry, the form of mission in the book of Acts. Can I wonder if you can say a little bit more about what are the pattern we see there that seem to stretch across the whole narrative? Yeah, there's obviously the narrative of geographical expansion, There's the narrative of apostolic leadership in this, and that means we need to read between the lines a little bit and think about the churches that the apostles left behind as well as their specific apostolic authority. The Book of Acts gives us a wonderful picture, perhaps unique in ancient literature, unique insights into life from below in the ancient world. Archaeology can tell us a lot, but here we have an amazing narrative of ordinary people doing extraordinary things and how their lives are transformed. And the typical pattern is that the gospel is preached, lives are transformed, a community is formed. And after the apostles leave, these communities continue to grow. And they grow partly because Put it bluntly, they're neither Jewish nor pagan. They're kind of in between communities. They're communities where everybody has given up something for the gospel. It's cost them something. Frankly, for pagans, it probably costs them a lot more than it costs the Jews, but it costs everybody. So they are transformed people, and yet their life is remarkable. It's attractive, and it's a wonderful bridge for the message that they're proclaiming. And so the gospel drives mission, but the church also contributes to it. And it's not just what we might call the high ups in the church, the apostles, the emerging leaders like uh, Philip and Stephen and Barnabas and Paul and so on. But uh, it's also the churches that have been left behind by the apostles. And that's incredibly powerful. And it attracts people across the social range. There are ordinary people, uh, there are some high-born people, but it just becomes a remarkable phenomenon, I guess. In the modern world, it goes viral, and you can't reproduce going viral, and you can't predict going viral. It just goes viral, and it goes viral, of course, because the church is proclaiming God's message in the power of the Spirit. 
Can I just pick up on that last phrase? You talked about proclaiming God's message in the power of the Spirit. And you mentioned that it's the message of the gospel that is the driver for mission. But nevertheless, the role of the Holy Spirit is absolutely crucial in the book of Acts. What are the distinctives about the ministry and role played by the Holy Spirit as exemplary in the book of Acts? Yeah, I think I probably want to answer that by saying there are are two things going on. I mean, partly they emerge from the Old Testament background. The promise of renewal to Israel in the power of the Spirit is to be a release of the prophetic spirit. And we can see that clearly in the quote from Joel chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, which is so central to the Apostle Peter's sermon on that day. The proclamation happens in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a release of the prophetic spirit. But the other end of this process is people responding to this with the power of the Holy Spirit coming upon them. And this is happens no more famously than in Acts chapter 10, as Peter preaches to Cornelius and his household, almost before the sermon has finished, the Spirit falls upon them. And we get the phenomena like prophecy and speaking in tongues mentioned a few times in the book of Acts, but both proclamation and response have in common the idea that the Holy Spirit gives boldness in proclamation, boldness in speaking. And so I think the work of the Holy Spirit to make people holy and Christ-like is not absent from the book of Acts, but it's the power of the Holy Spirit to make people bold in speaking. And that runs right out of the Old Testament prophets, that when the Spirit comes, the prophets speak words from God. And that seems to me to be the heart of the matter in the book of Acts. You've opened up for us an incredibly rich understanding of those themes that are exemplary in the book of Acts around the gospel of God's big story of the universal lordship of Jesus Christ driving the mission of this geographical expansion of the church and these wonderful, as you describe, in-between communities of the the least as well as the greatest embodying costs, but embodying the the reconciling power of, of the gospel. And also this sense of the boldness that comes from the spirit We must be careful, I know, about just drawing straight lines from then till now. But what are the things for you as you teach and on the book of Acts? What are the things that come alive for you in terms of saying this is something which, as we read Acts, we really need to be attentive to today? Yeah, there are lots of features in here that are just so fascinating for our context. I mean, it's a movement rooted in the ministry and message of Jesus They have this amazing combination of fixity and itinerancy in ministry between the local church and the traveling preachers like the apostles. Uh, It's clearly being led by men, leaders who are engaged in sacrificial, missional leadership, uh, engaged in both deliberate and, I think, incidental evangelism. You know, somebody gets healed, there's a crowd, they preach the gospel. Uh, their life was attractive. For everybody, the message is life-changing. And what's created are human-sized communities where relationships are real, discipleship is serious. Uh, Wherever the message is taken, it creates community, not just of believers, but of disciples. And, And they are communities of resistance in a dominant culture. They're not slashing at the fabric of Greco-Roman society. 
uh, by proclaiming Jesus as Lord. They're not picking a political fight, but they're just gently unpicking the seams of everything that holds the pagan world together. So they use their daily relationships as bridges for the good news. They spur one another on in discipleship. They include people of all ethnicities and backgrounds. They invite them to attractive communal life. And they have this clear sense that the Holy Spirit is with them, that Christ is present among them. And, you know, take your pick from that long list. They are all things the church could do better today. They're all things my church could do better. Well, let me finish with this question, therefore. You've been teaching, studying in the book of Acts for many years now. What are the things that have spoken to you in your own personal faith as well as in your ministry as someone in church leadership? Yeah, thank you. I suppose the answer to that is two things. One is a word of warning that I don't think the book of Acts is to be read alone. I mean, it is to be read with the gospel according to Luke, but it's not the final guide on how to do church. There's plenty in the rest of the New Testament that helps us with that. But I suppose the biggest challenge of the book of Acts is not to evade its prophetic stimulus. It's always going to be a book that leaves us uncomfortable and we should be made uncomfortable by it. Like reading the lives of saints in any generation, it's an uncomfortable experience when we compare it with our poor efforts. We want the Lord's work in and through us, and we invite that. But there is a danger, I think, of putting the book of Acts in a bit of a box of one kind or another. And I think we should just let it out, allow it to be a prophetic stimulus. When it challenges us to step up, to do hard things, to be more open to God, to be more receptive to the Holy Spirit, to be bolder in mission, to have more confidence in the gospel, then we shouldn't avoid that. We should just hear the discomfort, hear it as a prophetic stimulus, and allow that to percolate in our Christian lives individually, but as church community. Keep preaching on it, keep reading it. And when you feel like you want to make excuses for why it shouldn't be like that, stop yourself and ask the question, why can't it be like that? That's a great challenge on which to end. Mark Bonington, thank you very much indeed for appearing on Talking Theology. It's been great to be with you. have been listening to Talking Theology, a podcast from Cranmahal, Durham. Cranmahal is a theological college within St. John's College in the University of Durham, training people for ministry in the Church of England and other denominations. Find out more about us at cranmahal.com. <laughs>